Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to church tonight. It's a pleasure to have you. If it's your first night, you're coming on an interesting night because we are ending, as Tom said, almost an eight-month series on the same book, the Gospel of John, that we've been working through pretty much chapter by chapter, um, except for at the beginning where we really zoomed in on a few uh, sections of verses. And you would be forgiven for thinking, if you were here last week, that we could really just end the series there and be done with it and move on. Because we've seen the narrative since Jesus has died, he's risen from the grave, he's appeared to Mary, to the disciples and Thomas, and then we kind of hit this climax of what this whole gospel is all about. What is the purpose of it being written down by the disciple of John? And he says that the purpose is so that you and me and anyone who reads this might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. The climax of the book. And yet, there's this whole other chapter tacked on at the end. There's still another section to read beyond this beautiful climax. So why on earth is it here? Why do we have this extra week? It's almost the ultimate epilogue, really. It's the ultimate bookend of a whole bunch of things that John has purposefully done throughout his gospel. Now, when we start comparing the different gospels, we see something really interesting, that the endings of a gospel are incredibly important. They help pursue and amplify and tie up whatever purpose that gospel writer is trying to bring home for its audience. So Matthew's gospel, for example, if you know Matthew 28, he finishes with Jesus' words, for the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. He sends them out and then he ascends into heaven and that's where Matthew finishes. Mark's gospel, on the other hand, finishes at the empty tomb much earlier. Mary meets an angel who says, Jesus isn't here, he's risen. Go tell the disciples, go to Galilee. And that's where he ends. Luke is entirely different again. He points out how Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, of how he's the Messiah, that the Old Testament is now fulfilled. And finally, we have John, which seems different again, right? The disciples are gathering in Galilee, and this isn't necessarily Jesus' final words or even the description of his ascension. We get this story of what happened beside the Sea of Galilee. John wants to end his gospel, not only by reinforcing all that he's looked at before, but if his purpose is for us to believe and have life, then his readers need to know, what does life look like when I follow Jesus? What is this life that I'm signing up to? So this wonderful epilogue helps us see a little window into what life as a Christian looks like. Even more than that, as we kind of zoom into the Gospel of John itself, it's the ultimate bookend of both the book as a whole. So if you were with us eight months ago, and I will forgive you if you don't remember, it feels a while ago, but we spent a whole bunch of time on chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, this incredible prologue that introduces the elements that John will flesh out later. Lightness and darkness, God revealed, Jesus unveiled, this kind of language. And so this epilogue is meant to mirror the beginning of his book. And you'll see elements of that. But also it's meant to mirror some of the disciples' stories. 
If you've read the other Gospels, you'll know that Simon, Peter, James and John were met while they were fishing by Jesus. In fact, two other disciples, Simon and Andrew, actually met him at the Sea of Galilee, the very story where this final chapter takes place. They're fishing, they can't catch anything, sounds very similar to what we hear tonight. And Jesus arrives on shore, performs a miracle and says, come and follow me. You're meant to see these wonderful parallels of what John is doing here very purposefully in both his book as a whole, but also the smaller stories. But lastly, it also has to resolve some of these loose ends that we've seen appear in some of the characters through John's gospel, particularly two of them, Peter and John. Now, Simon Peter, we'll call him Peter in the passage he's mentioned as Simon, same person. He has gone from denying Jesus in chapter 18, one, two, three times. And when the early readers of John's gospel are reading this, he's now the leader of the early church. He's an incredibly important figure. And so this part of the gospel helps see the middle bit from how he got to where he was, the Jesus-denying guy, to where he is now, the guy leading the charge for that very Jesus that he denied. So it helps resolve some of those tensions as to how Peter was sent off into ministry, reinstated, as it were. But also, it helps us to clarify John as well, because early on in the church, there was a rumour that because of this chapter, John, the, gospel, the disciple John, wouldn't die until Jesus returned. But then John did die. And the disciples and the early church and Christians are thinking, what do we do? We thought Jesus would return before he died, but now Jesus hasn't returned. John's not here. Peter's not here. Who do we look to now? What do we do? It's a similar question that the demographic of 7pm will often ask. What do I do when the leader that I've been following in my faith is gone? What if they move on to another church or another ministry or they shift gears or whatever it is? For the early church, it's John has passed on into heaven, into glory. Who do they follow now? All of this is to say that it's a brilliant epilogue that's meant to add on and reinforce all that we've seen before. It's rich and it's intentional and we see it in four different ways throughout the gospel. We see a revelation, we see a question, a command and a reminder and that's what we're going to work through tonight. Jesus brings a revelation. The disciples have arrived in Galilee. They might be hungry, they might just not know what to do while they're waiting there for Jesus or something to happen. Whatever it is, Simon Peter decides to go fishing. And so they jump in a boat, they head out, and they end up there all night long, catching nothing. You'd hope in that moment they remember what's happened three years before. Maybe they don't. And as we've seen throughout John's Gospel, the darkness of the night is contrasted with the light of the morning as Jesus arrives. He performs a miracle. John realises it's the Lord. Jesus is here. He tells Peter. Peter jumps in the ocean, wades the 100 metres to the beach. And I just love this picture that John paints of Jesus just calmly by a warm fire that he's lit with the fish and bread he's already brought. As the disciples hurriedly arrive, Peter's dripping wet, probably cold and frantic. It's like 
5 a.m. They're pulling up the boat with now this full net. They can't even pull into the boat to get it on the shore. And Jesus greets them with warmth and food and the words, come and have breakfast. Isn't that such a beautiful image of Jesus? He knows his disciples deeply. He's always loved them richly. He's the sustainer of all things. He's now the risen Lord. He's just proved he has conquered death. And yet he wants to sit and eat with and talk with and walk down the beach with his friends. That's his character. He meets their night of fruitless work and frustration with sustenance and abundance. It's just an everyday normal kind of setting for John to record as the final interaction of Jesus with the disciples. I think that's the beauty of it, though. I think the beauty of this passage is that Jesus wants to come and be in relationship with his people. He's almost moved beyond just proving to them, guys, I'm alive. I was dead. I'm alive. He's moved beyond that. Now he wants to just be with them in a familiar, tangible, relational way. But he's not just bringing a revelation of himself. He's also revealing what is his mission that his people are meant to carry on with. As he passes the torch, what is it that he wants them to do? And so not only do we see this revelation, but he begins by asking a question that he repeats three times. He says, Simon, son of John, a.k.a. Simon Peter, a.k.a. Peter, Bible and names, who knows. Do you love me more than these? the rest of the disciples. Yes, Lord, Peter responds. You know that I love you. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I've got a feel for Peter here. If Jesus says that to you the third time, you're going to start worrying. (laughs) What have I, I know I've already done all the three things, but why does he keep asking me? He says, you know all things. You know that I love you. For each and every one of Peter's denials, Jesus provides a way back. Do you love me? You know that I do, Lord. And I wonder if you're like me who sees that pointedly in their own prayer life sometimes. Sometimes all I have on a morning as I sit down to pray and read my Bible and look ahead at my day is the fact that Jesus knows I love him and that is all I've got for that day. That's all I can cling to. That's enough. That is enough. Maybe you're here tonight and all you have to bring to Jesus is the fact that he knows everything, he knows your heart, he knows your mind, he knows you love him. It's enough. Or maybe you're here tonight and you may need to be reminded, just like Peter that no matter how many times we deny and we reject and we disobey and we flee from him, that there's a way back, that his mission is to provide a way back. There's never too many things in your way. There's never too much that's happened for you to come back and say, Jesus, you know that I love you. This conversation is a comfort, isn't it? It's meant to be. There's no sin too great, no distance too far where Jesus doesn't say, do you love me? You know that I do, Lord. 
But just as Jesus affirms Peter, he also commissions him. He commands him. Because to love Jesus is to love his people. Loving Jesus actually results in an action. Receiving his forgiveness in the way that any Christian here tonight has and Peter has requires action. Jesus tells Peter his job is to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Three different ways of saying literally the exact same thing. Peter, your job is to love my people, serve my church, care for my family. For Peter, his love for the Lord and the evidence that he's now been reinstated, forgiven forgiven and sent off into ministry are to be displayed in how he loves the Lord's flock, how he loves the sheep that God has gathered under him. And I don't think that it's overstating it to say that it's similar for us, to say that the evidence of our love for God and the result of God's love for us is to love one another. Do we love God? If we do, we love his people. That is the way of the Christian life. And there are countless examples of the same biblical commands that exist all throughout the New Testament. There's a whole bunch that we could point to, and I won't read them all. John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Hebrews 13, 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. To love Jesus is to love his people. But I actually want to go one step further because it can be incredibly hard to love God's people on the other side of the planet, practically, radically, tangibly. It can be incredibly hard to love God's people even just in the rest of Australia or in the state or even in Sydney. To be lovers of God's sheep, to care for them practically. How do we do that for someone who's on the other side of our city even. I think it's really amazing that God has gathered this group of people here, this mini family in God's big family for us to love and to serve and to care for. And so I want to say that to love Jesus is actually to love 7pm. To love Jesus is to love this part of God's family radically and deeply. A few weeks ago, when we were back in chapter 17, Stu preached on the impact that a church that's unified in love has on the world. And he claimed that our love for one another could, in and of itself, bring people to faith, bring people into the church to know Christ. And then there was a question asked by Meg, actually, in Q&A that has stuck with me ever since. I cannot shake it. She asked... Should loving each other be our primary evangelistic strategy as a church? Are we kind of wasting our time on a whole bunch of apologetics or ways in or conversation training when we should just get on loving each other? And I just think that's such a powerful insight. I I think that that is radical and true. What if our unity with each other and our love for one another is the very means by which God wants to build his kingdom? Bring people into the family of God. A while ago, this clip was doing the rounds on social media. I don't know if you saw it. It is a couple of women in canoes 
and they're kind of out on the water and then all of a sudden one of them says, look up. And so the camera kind of pans up and they start to see this. It's called a murmuration. Didn't know that before two weeks ago, but there you go. And it's thousands and thousands and thousands of starling birds that move together as one. Isn't that incredible? It's, I've never seen anything like it. But these women are aghast. They're, they're in awe of whatever this is. It's like, it's like it moves and breathes together, doesn't it? And yet it's made up of individual, single birds. Is that just the most amazing thing? But the only way that this works, truly, is if every single bird in that flock is deeply aware of the birds around it. That's the only way it works, right? Where you go, I go. When you adjust, I adjust. It's almost in, intrinsic in how they move. It becomes instinctive. And look at the awe that that inspires. People travel the world to see these. They literally get on planes to go and see birds fly in the sky because it is that or instilling. And I don't think that that is too dissimilar to what the church is meant to be. I really don't. We too are meant to move and breathe and transform together. And the only way it works is if each and every individual part of this body is so deeply aware of each other. You move, I move. You go there, I'm there. I am in this with you forever. To love Jesus is to love 7pm. And if you're a member of 7pm, you have to be so deeply aware of where we're at, where we're going, who are the people around you, how are you loving and serving them, that it becomes almost instinctive. It's that kind of rich, deep relationship. But we can't do that unless we know where they are, who they are, where they're at. I have been doing these devotionals with um, an author. Um, He does a whole bunch of online and books and things like that. He's called Paul Tripp. Really good. Can recommend for a daily devotional. Absolutely. And um, classic, when you're reading through a passage like this, God gives you a devotion that's literally on the topic. And I read one just this week that said this. One of the themes that courses through the New Testament is that your walk with God is designed by God to be a community project. You and I were not simply created by him and recreated in Jesus to live all by ourselves. He says, we are the temple. Stones joined together to be the place where God himself dwells. We are the body, each member dependent on the function of another to continue. And yet, we've become skilled at brief, non-personal conversations about the weather and sport and politics. We're learned at giving non-answers or spiritually shallow responses when asked questions at church. And this is the bit that kills me every time. We live in long-term networks of terminally casual relationships. We live in long-term networks of terminally casual relationships. No one knows us beneath the well-crafted public display and because they don't know us, 
They can't minister to us. Isn't that so true? If people don't deeply know us, how can they love us? How can they be the family of God to us if they don't know? Or if we don't know where they are, what they have on their hearts, what they're dealing with. We need to deeply know each other so that we can then love each other because Jesus didn't come just to know people. He already knew everybody. He made them. And he didn't tell Peter just to go and know people, know my flock. He came to love and he sends Peter and us off to love his people. During the week, I um, texted a whole bunch of you. Sorry if you didn't get one. Um, and I asked one question and I, wanted, I got a whole bunch of responses. It was awesome. And I, the question was, when is the time you've seen a 7pm display radical love to their church family? And I didn't know what was going to come back. I had no clue. I just thought, I'll send this and see what happens. And there are a whole bunch of responses. Some gave responses that were like, look, this isn't super radical, but I just think it's great that people in our church do this. They talked about small group leaders. They talked about people who open up their homes every week, who serve meals every week to their small group. They talked about the people on lockup rosters. We love you guys who stay till the end of church so that we can enjoy time together and then go home and they're stuck turning off the lights amazing. Other people started telling me stories. One story about someone who knew another 7pm's laptop was dying a slow and painful death and actually really impacting them at work. And so this person went and found a MacBook Pro, wiped it, turned up with it and was like, here you go. It's yours. Just use it for as long as you like. Another person, a couple actually, knew that someone in this congregation was struggling with money and they sent them 200 bucks and on the transaction, the, de- the description was, God is great. Isn't that amazing? Another person who knew that a, new, a couple of new people from 7pm were moving in to a new place, didn't have a washing machine, and so they went and found out kind of what they wanted, um, what kind of things they were looking for, searched a bunch on Gumtree, went to the place where they were going to pick up this washing machine, haggled the owner down to a, pr- a cheaper price, picked up the washing machine, took it back to this new house, installed it, and was like, there you go. Amazing, right? These are little glimpses of the kind of love that Jesus envisions for his church. Little tastes of what this church, this family, this 7pm could be every day, every week, every year. But, I'll be honest, the vast majority of responses were something along these lines. They said, I think we're really kind to each other and I think we're really nice to each other, but I can't think of an example where there's been super radical kind of love. Not in ways that you wouldn't see, say, at the local footy club who love each other dearly or the local rotary club who serves the community wonderfully, things like that. Not many people, the majority of responses I got was, We're doing awesome at some stuff, but I can't think of anything particularly momentous. And I want that to lay on your hearts as much as that's laid on my heart for the last few weeks. A church who's kind of nice to each other is not the church, is not displaying the kind of love that Jesus displayed to his people. And a church that vaguely knows each other 
is not the kind of church that can move and breathe and adjust and transform together like that murmuration. I think we need to work on knowing each other, loving each other deeply, because to love Jesus is to love 7 p.m. We can be inspired by what's already going on, and we should be. I am so thankful for the people who love one another richly. Praise God for all that's going on that I don't know about under the surface. But I wonder if we have the tendency to so fill our time and our lives, we're so busy that we actually don't have the space to deeply know those around us, to radically love them. Because if this is true, and these are the final words that John wants us to hear in his gospel, and Jesus sends us off in this mission, to love Jesus is to love 7 p.m., then I think we can do more. I think we can love more radically. I think we can be more godly in this. It's before and above and more important than anything else in your life if you're a Christian here tonight. Love Jesus, and so we love his people. Let's invest in each other. Let's meet with each other and sacrifice for each other. Let's serve with each other. Let's spend outrageous amounts of money on 7 p.m., on this church, on this family, for the things that this church supports, for people in need on our doorstep. Let's pray for each other. Let's just be bold and radical. Why not? Let's love Jesus and love his people. Find out who those people are. Learn some new names. Meet the people around you you haven't met yet. And go and love them. And yes, I hear the voice inside your brain that's going, oh, Mel, that takes so much energy and time and sacrifice and thought. Yeah, it does. But if this is true, then we can't let these words just be words that we think, oh, yeah, I heard a sermon on that once. That was the end of a really long series. Kind of blurs into the back of my memory. These are words that any Christian lives by. Feed my lambs, Jesus says. Take care of my sheep, Jesus says. Feed my sheep, Jesus says. Three times he has to get it into our brains. Love his church, serve his family, take care of each other. Imagine if we so outdid one another in the kind of radical love that we had for each other that people stepped into 7 p.m. and went, What is going on here? It's as though a murmuration has filled the building. They're just otherworldly. They're just something that I can't put my finger on, but I want in. I want whatever they have because they seem loved and content and in awe. To love Jesus is to love his people. And so for us, to love Jesus is to love 7 p.m. And finally, we get this beautiful reminder towards the end of the chapter to just take a step back and look at the immeasurable greatness of Jesus. If you haven't done this already, this is your challenge for this week. Go back and read the whole of John's gospel in one go. Carve out just a couple of hours 
sit down and read it like a novel from beginning to end. It won't take long. I've done it this week. You can do it. And look back at all that we've journeyed through as Jesus himself has unveiled God. He's come to offer salvation. He's come to defeat the very thing that no human has ever defeated before in death. And he did it so that you might believe and have life. That life ended up costing Peter his life. He was executed for living this life. And it will cost us too. It will cost us dearly. But to love Jesus who gave up everything for us is to give up everything for him and go out and love his people. As Peter stood face to face with his risen Lord, Jesus asks what he asks of us tonight. Do you love me? Do you love me? Third time you should feel squeamish. Do you love me? If you love me, go and love my people. Let's pray. Lord God, would you build us to be a church that utterly reflects your love for us? Would you build us to be a people that when people walk in the door and encounter us, they see a love and a care and a radicalness for one another that is just nothing they've ever experienced before? We ask that anyone who comes into our church might be struck by what we're doing here, by you and your character that so fills this place that they want in on whatever it is that makes us what we are. And would it change their lives forever, Lord. Amen.